like we got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. that. We don't got time for that Let's go. Break it. Break it. Let it cross. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson and Nick Springer on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Hey, what's happening? Welcome into another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN. I'm Derek Johnson, and I am without Nick Springer on today's edition of the show. He's out of town Having a nice little uh, summer vacation this weekend. So Nick will be back on Monday. I'll have you covered solo on today's edition of the show. We're going to be joined by Shreyas Lada of the Kansas City Star in about 20, 25 minutes from right now to talk a little KU football, a little KU basketball. We've got sports stock market, lie detector test, our KU football Friday question hypothetical of the day in the 5 o'clock hour. We're going to share some Kevin McCuller audio with you. And uh, the latest kind of going around, whether it's the San Diego State news, off, uh, asking to leave the Mountain West, Nick Marsh visiting as another big uh, visit weekend for KU football with, uh, I think, almost double-digit players again. So we'll see if there, there ends up being another boost of uh, player commits for the KU football team over the next couple of days and uh, for next week here with the show. I want to start things off, though. I For whatever reason, I thought it was 10 weeks out to the first game of the KU football season. But uh, recheck the calendar today. We are 11 weeks out, so that makes it even worse that I thought it was 10, and now it's not even that close away. But nonetheless, we are 11 weeks away from the start of the KU football season. Um, you know, I could I could tell you that as we're going to start the show here off, uh, I'm going to give you my 11 things I'm most excited for this year because we are 11 weeks out. I could tell you that 11 sounds like a great number, or I could just tell you I was planning on doing a a top 10 list because we were 10 weeks out and then I figured out it was 11 and it changed 11. I'll let you decide on that. Nonetheless, uh, the 11 things that I am most excited for this year for KU football. So this could be in a category of anything from just me being entertained to the questioning side of things like, you know, what exactly um, is going to happen here or, you know, X, Y, and Z about who's going to step up, or yada, 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 right? Um, I think I, I should probably say that there is the given one here about, just in general, that's not going to make it onto the top 11 list here, about I'm just excited for it to be football season in general. I love the fall weather, tailgating season, um, football just as a whole, whether it's KU, other teams, it's a lot of fun, right? I'm not going to waste the space, though, with that on the list. Uh, so uh, here are my 11 things I'm most excited for with KU football this year. Number 11, how many different hats will Lance Leipold wear? This is an underrated one for me. Uh, most people probably don't care about this, and that's totally fine. I will say this. Lance Leipold, very stylish with the hat collection. Um, over the course of last season, it felt like he had a different hat on every media availability week. Low-key. Good hat collection, low-key, good style collection for Lance Leipold. How many more hats can he have this year? Uh, I need to start just, like, taking pictures of it uh, every press conference and, and seeing how many we go through over the course of 
of the different season because uh, there are a lot in there. Big hat guy, I think, is uh, what Lance Leipold. Uh, okay, <laughs> on to the top 10. Uh, does anyone step up on the defensive side of the ball? Right? Are there any players that have breakout seasons, essentially, on the defensive side? And I think specifically I would narrow in to the defensive line. I expect Jeremy Robinson to be a really good player for this team and to take a step up. But does he turn into a possible eight, nine sack per game or, or per season guy? Does he turn into an all-conference level D lineman? Or is he just a solid starter for you? And either way, you feel good about it. But certainly with the loss of Lonnie Phelps and questions about how this defense, how much better are they going to get? How much better can they get? You could use as big of a jump as possible there. So that becomes one you look at. But then you, you look really all across the defensive line, whether it's transfers you brought in with, you know, like Gage Keys or uh, what is like Patrick Joyner going to bring to the table, right, after being injured through like spring ball. Uh, what about the guys that you've been developing on the interior of the defensive line? Tommy Dunn, DJ Weathers. Like, is anybody going to step up on the defensive side of the ball to where there's a player that we maybe aren't considering as being a possible star or a possible all-conference pick that's going to jump out. That'll be something that I'm really excited to see this year. And obviously, if it doesn't end up happening, that is very likely, but also would... Because right now, as you're, you're viewing it, you know Kansas is being seen as one of the two or three worst defenses in the Big 12. If you just look at like national predictions and stuff, um, if you get some of those improvements, some of those jumps from players, that's how you can take that jump into being you know, a top 10 defense or, or a middle-of-the-pack defense on the season. And, and if you combine that with being one of the more elite offenses in the Big 12, which you're kind of expected to have, that's how you wind up with a really special season. All right, the uh, ninth thing I'm most excited for this year for KU football, finding out which young players set themselves up to be the next jumpers. So not necessarily guys that are going to play this year, but tracking over the course of the season, whether it's playing spot snaps here or there or just hearing good things about them during weeks of practice and um, during the bye week. And then if you have those bowl practices, similar to what we heard like this year with Tommy Dunn and DJ Withers. So last year, we heard a lot about those guys progressing over the course of the season in practice. Didn't see a ton of it necessarily in games. You heard even more about it during the bowl games. And now it looks like Tommy Dunn is going to be one of your starters on the defensive line at the defensive tackle position. Right. So like it's not necessarily something that had an impact on last year's team, but it was something that allowed us to kind of read the writing on the wall about an impact player, possibly or starter level player this year. Who are going to be some of those developmental guys who you feel like could be that next starter that are going to emerge this season? Is it, you know, possible? Uh, I don't know, like a Johnny Thompson where he's not getting a ton of carries, but you're hearing good things about him and. You know, you have all these guys in front of you, like Savion Morrison, Devin Neal, Dylan McDuffie, Daniel Highshaw, that limits your carries, but you hear good things about him that he can be next in line. Could it be one of the receivers, right? You got three freshman receivers coming into the building. Could it be a, a Douglas Emelian or something? Could it be uh, one of the young tight ends like a Jaden Ham? There are a lot of guys that you could look to that could be making that next big wave or that next big jump that maybe don't have as great of an opportunity for playing time right this year, right? Demarius McGee, the transfer from LSU. Uh, Brian Dilworth, who, you know, you have your three starting corners back. They'll get on the field, but how much are they going to play? But could they impress you enough 
that all of a sudden come 2024, come the offseason, come spring ball next year, we're talking about those guys being the ones that, that could make big jumps. Finding out who those players are is number nine. Number eight on the list is just better kicking in general. KU had the worst uh, field goal kicking and punting unit in the Big 12 the last two seasons. If you go by you know, field goal percentage, if you go by yards per punt, um, KU just struggled in those regards. At kicker, there's been a competition, and I'm sure the competition will continue on through the fall. You have Owen P, you have uh, Seth Keller, you have Charlie Weinrich. I think Seth Keller probably has the inroads to be the starter, and, and he's been a productive kicker uh, in his previous time at Texas State. You should have vast improvements from a kicking standpoint. How much does that help you over the course of the season? I would think a lot, uh, both in terms of getting more points in spots where you just missed kicks, but also it allows you to change the way that you're maybe calling plays in certain situations where, you know, maybe if Kansas had a, I don't know what, like a third and 12 at the opponent 38-yard line, you knew you weren't going to be able to make a 55-yard field goal. And so the coaching staff is at a standpoint where it's like, well, we either got to get 12 yards on one play or we got to get at least like eight so that we can go for it on fourth down. Now this changes things up where you can open it up a little more and be like, well, if we get five, we can still kick a field goal, right? Like, there are different ways you can go about it. So it helps you a lot, but to see how much better the kicking is. Is it a substantial improvement on how this team's special teams can be? Because we know they do need to improve on that end of the spectrum. And you add the Australian punter, too. Like, how much is that going to help the defense? Um, if you pin teams further back, if you set them up in worse positions, uh, if you give your defense longer roads to to go through, not just because the punt went longer, but also it had better hang time or something, or if, uh, if it is going to be more of the Australian punting, because he's an Australian punter, where it's like the rugby-style punting of, you know, just kind of bouncing down the field where it's maybe tougher to return, is that going to lead to even more yards back that the opposing team is on to where your defense has even more margin for error, right? Like, the kicking game is actually something I'm very excited to see for this upcoming season with some player personnel improvements that you made. Uh, number seven on this list is looking at how gigantic Logan Brown is. I don't know if Logan Brown's going to be a starter or not. Um, Dominic Pooney is moving to the tackle position. At least that's what he's listed now in the KU football roster, something John Kirby brought up in his interview yesterday. Does that mean Pooney is one of the starting tackles? And then the other starting tackle, could it be Bryce Cabledew? Could it be Kobe Baines? Could it be Logan Brown? Logan Brown certainly has the highest potential, highest ceiling of all those guys. And if the talent comes to fruition, I would expect him to be the starter. But could Bryce Cable do? He knows the system more, be the starter right off the bat. Could Logan Brown, like he'll still get on the field. Could he be a starter? Could he be a rotational guy? I don't know. Certainly the potential would make you think, yeah, he, he would be that other starter. And I think the staff would love him to be that other starter because of the fact that um, you have a high potential guy. And for him to earn the starting spot, that would mean he's doing good things. But if you've seen that guy in person, I will tell you what, it is a different level of offensive lineman and athlete that, I mean, th that guy is just absolutely gigantic. Um, and you can see the potential, you can see the broad shoulders, you can see why he was a former five-star recruit. So just looking at how big he is and maybe some of the pancakes that he has over the course of the season it's gonna be super fun uh number six thing i'm most interested for with ku football daniel highshaw being back i we didn't really get to see a ton during spring ball um how back is he gonna be right is he gonna be back to the guy he was both in terms of ku 
giving him that many carries early in the season and in terms of the same explosiveness and guy who's going to run you over and the guy who had that incredible receiving touchdown against Duke where you know he has that spin move and stays alive and then just runs downfield, right? How back is he going to be? And if he is back to his form from last year, you're going to feel really, really good about that running back core, right? So seeing Daniel Highshaw back and just the story of him having to overcome that bad injury, that you know dislocated hip, uh, like a year prior, he had torn his ACL before the season started. Just a cool comeback story. You hope he has a full season, a full healthy season, both because you know he's a very talented athletic player, but also because you, you just want to feel good for a kid who's gone through a lot of work just to get back on the football field the past couple of years with some of these really tough injuries. And uh, just to see the fruits of, of his labor kind of come together this season would be awesome to see. Uh, the f- top five things I'm most excited to see this year for KU football. Number five, can good players make a jump to being great? So you have certain players who, you know, Devin Neal's been a really good player. Kobe Bryant's been a really good player. Um, I don't know. You could go on and on down, down the list, right? You Mike Nowitzki, Dominic Pooney, Jalen Daniels. You know, you ha- you've had a lot of players that have proven they can be good Big 12 players. Which players can make a jump to great? Which players can go from being all Big 12 to being All-American? And that'll be something we talk about more during our uh, KU Football Friday question in the 5 o'clock hour. So I'll save some more of that conversation then. But which players can jump from being good to being great? Because if you're going to have a great season, you need players to make that jump, right? Like, um, you think about KU's Orange Bowl season, and you have... You know, maybe Aqib Tlaib, he makes a jump from first-team All-Big 12 to being a first-team All-American and being a first-round draft pick, right? It's not that everybody has to go from being good to great, but you need a couple of them to be those game-changing type of players, right? Marcus Henry going from being a good receiver to being maybe a great receiver his senior year. Who's going to make that jump this year? Will there be enough of them to make a real impact? Number four on this list is Jared Casey doing anything. I love watching Jared Casey just play football. I love watching him set key blocks setting the edge. I love watching him catch passes. I love watching this guy be used in a trick play that gets him wide open and he's got these secure hands. Jared Casey is just fun to watch. It's it's the story. It's the, you know, underdog mentality, so, so to speak, of a former walk-on. It's, I don't know, just the way he plays and how endearing it is, I think, to the program, being an in-state kid. Uh, he's not the biggest kid in the world. He is just, he's just, the family story, it's one of the more wholesome stories in college football, and just watching him do anything and everything well, because he is a really good player, is a lot of fun, and uh, that is number four on the list. Okay, into the top three of things that I am most excited for with the KU football season here in 2023 as we are 11 weeks out from the KU football season. Watching Andy Kotelnicki be a madman. And I think, honestly, you could have had on the, or I I could have had on this list um, something about like, what will Kansas look like schematically this year? I think is something I'm excited for, and, and this kind of goes in line with that. I think in all in all different places, right? From a special teams perspective, you bring on Sean Snyder. I know he's not special teams coordinator, but you'd imagine he's going to have his fingerprints over the special teams. Is there anything schematically they're going to be doing differently on those special teams? The defensive side of the ball. It's been a struggle for the defense lately. Um, I'd imagine the formation and everything is going to be the same, but does Brian Borland change anything up with you know, maybe a lack of success over the past couple of years, right? Does, uh, is there more blitzing? Is there more of a certain type of zone coverage that they haven't done in the past, right? Is there more double team? Are, are there are there a few different things, uh, stunts on the defensive line, right, that they do a little bit differently on the defensive side of the ball than maybe they have done 
in the past. But offensively is where it really draws, and, and that's what got number three on here. Just watching Andy Kolnicki be a madman where he has all these uh, crazy trick plays or he has all these crazy formations or different motions where you're confusing the defense. Watching that stuff is so aesthetically pleasing, and it's free. It doesn't cost talent. It doesn't cost five-star recruits. It doesn't cost you money. It doesn't cost you penalty yards. I, I guess it could, hypothetically. But you know what I mean? Like, like doing different creative things with your player personnel, with your motions, with your formations, there's nothing stopping you from doing that. It doesn't penalize yourself from doing that. I guess the penalty could be if it's too complicated, maybe a player forgets a play, or maybe uh, your players haven't honed it down as, as well as maybe some more simple stuff. That That's understandable, but I mean, the way that he just doctors up to get guys open in that regard and, and that it works out for this team, watching some more of those plays is so much fun to watch, and I'm excited to see that again, what he can do now with another year in the program. And what exactly the offense will look like. Like, I, I'll be honest, like, I don't have a great idea, to be completely honest. Like, you go into year one and you're running more of the wide zone stuff. And then you go into year two and you start running some of this speed option. But then by the end of the year, like, you look at the game against Arkansas where you're getting down, you're just having to throw so much, where you're becoming more of that throwing off. At, like, and with Jason Bean, it was a different type of offense because he couldn't really run as much as a quarterback. You've seen a lot of different variations of the types of plays they've called. And a lot of times they're similar, like you might still run a few plays that are the same. But it's still different variations of it that um, I'm really excited to see what that variation of things looks like this year. Do they run even more triple option type stuff that worked really well last year? Do they run less of it because maybe more teams have a book out on them and they're going to try to take advantage of that? I, I don't know. I think we had a good answer from David Lawrence kind of in that regard earlier this week where he said, you know, if you look at it at the back half of the season, those teams did have time. They have all these analysts that are now hired now to basically look ahead on your schedule and, and watch those teams. The teams you had in the back half of the ski season were prepped for the option stuff, and you were still able to run it uh, pretty well even down that point of the year. So I'd still imagine that'll be a staple, but yeah, to what degree? Uh, the number two thing is just watching Jalen Daniels play football in general. Anytime you get to watch Jalen Daniels play football, it's a fun day. He has such a live wire arm. He has such a a great personality. You always see the smile on his face. He's uplifting for his teammates. Dynamic player with his scrambling ability, his running ability, and that arm. Very accurate passer. Uh, you see even the, the downfield throws. Like He's just a complete package. He's someone who ever since he came in and, and we got to talk to him in media availabilities, you knew had the personality to be a star. You knew had the personality to galvanize the locker room. But, you know, sometimes guys come in and they have that great personality, but they just don't have it on the field. And that's, you know, totally fine. This is D1 level. Like, sometimes it's not going to work out. But with Jalen, it all has clicked so far. And just watching him play football, and you hope he stays healthy because we saw what that looked like last year, and it is so fun to watch. Uh, the number one thing, though, that I'm most excited to watch this year for KU football, can Kansas take a leap? to being a Big 12 title contender? Can they go from being a bowl team to being in the discussion? Not necessarily that they are playing for the Big 12 title, though I will say it is open this year. Texas might be a top 10 team. They've got the talent for it. How many years have we said that about Texas, though? And then they win seven or eight games. Oklahoma, they all have a ton of talent. Year two with Brett Venables, like they might be my pick in the preseason right now just because – I thought that with Brent Venables, it was going to be more complicated. He runs a complicated defense, but they have a lot of talent in the program now. Year two of Dylan Gabriel. But even then, they won six games last year. They were six and seven. They lost their bowl game, right? Um, Kansas State, 
you lose a couple dynamic players, right? You lose Deuce Vaughn, who was the heartbeat of your offense. You lose Malik Knowles uh, on the outside. You lose your best defensive player in Felix and Udike Uzama. Um, and Kansas State brings a ton back, so it wouldn't surprise anybody if they won the Big 12 again. But it's not like they're not replacing anything either. Like TCU won all these close games by knocking out all these quarterbacks. They lose a lot of players. Probably not going to have that same luck this year. So it is open enough. And typically, if you were to say a team won six games one year and they're going to return, you know, whatever it is, 17, 18 of the starters next year, and one of those guys was a Heisman candidate at one point, you'd be like, oh, of course this team could or should win eight or nine games and be a conference title contender. But the schedule's tough, and you don't know about the defense, and we're not used to saying that or hearing that, and it was just one good year among the last 15 for KU football, that you're not going to go there quite yet, even though you know there is a realistic path to getting there. So can they take that step up? Can they make that leap to being a Big 12 title contender? Would it finally involve you beating Kansas State? Because that would mean a lot to a lot of people in the program and in the state. Uh, that is what I'm most interested to see this year for KU football. All right, we're going to take a timeout. Shreyas Lada of the Kansas City Star, KansasCity.com, is going to join us next. Talk a little KU football, a little KU hoops here on RCST. Welcome back in to Rock Shock Sports Talk on KLWN. Eric Johnson flying solo today. No Nick Springer. We will uh, get on to some more KU football talk later on in the show, and actually including right now. We're joined on the phone by Shreyas Lada of the Kansas City Star and at KansasCity.com. You can check out some of his latest work there, including a uh, mailbag that he just did asking a bunch of questions. So I figured I would add even more and ask him even more questions right now. Uh, KU football has a bunch more visitors in town this weekend and had a bunch last weekend. They landed a handful of commits. We'll see if there's going to be more commits over the next couple days, next couple weeks, whatever. Uh, just from a big-picture perspective, Shreyas, what does this feel like to you? What, what does Kansas football, uh, what uh, what they're doing in recruiting, what does this all mean, big picture? I mean, honestly, they're building something really special and exciting. Uh, somebody asked me, like, you know, 2023, 2024, what do you see as a ceiling of Kansas football? And I said, you know, 2023, you know, things go well. Defense takes a step forward. Jalen Daniels was healthy. Offense stays the way it is you're looking at a team that could win nine games. 2024, I think with the guys they're bringing in and just the class and stuff like that, the talent, you could be looking at a team that is, as long as Jalen is there, is a Big 12 title contender, I think. Maybe that's a little ahead of myself, but I really think what they're doing you know, with the recruiting class and, and really getting themselves out there, they've done an excellent job. Um, you know, They've locked up two four-star DBs, basically, um, in the 2024 class. they got a, a three-star running back that, you know, he's on the verge of being a four-star. He might be by the time, you know, he's doing steps foot in Lawrence. Um, you know, and they've got some really other great, you know, quality players like Chris Utley and some others. I've been super impressed by their the recruiting and, and everything they've done. Um, you know, it kind of showcases that Kansas is probably in the best position they've been in a very long time. I mean, I, I was asking Scott about this, but, you know, they haven't had a recruiting weekend like this, it feels like, since uh, Les Miles. Yeah, and and even then, like right now, they're they're kind of outpacing in in some regards to what Les Miles did. Though there were a lot of great players that came through with the Miles era. There, uh, you you obviously you're from Georgia, and uh, I, I guess right now with all the hype that's going for KU, if I if I gave you KU football plus Georgia versus the field for the national title, what are you taking? Ooh, uh, oh man, that's that's tough. I, I'm going to take the field. You know, I. Uh-huh. Uh, 
I, I just gotta, <laughs> I gotta see what's, uh, you know, I know that the, the quarterbacks coming in are, are more talented than Stetson Bennett were, uh, was, but I just gotta see them play on the field. I, I'm a, I'm much more of a, yeah, they can be talented in high school or they can be talented by the star rating, but I'm, I gotta see them play on the field, uh, before anything. But I just think there's a lot of talent out there and, you know, especially in 2024, 25, when you playoff expansion and all that. It'll it'll be interesting. I think there's going to be a lot more, uh, you know, a lot less dynasties, and you know, Georgia will always be up there. But um, you know, I I think the field is is the safe answer there. Yeah, well, Georgia trying to be the first team in the poll era to uh, three-peat the previous thirteen or zero for thirteen since uh, 1936. So history not on their side there. Uh, we're talking with Trace Lotta, Kansas City Star, KansasCity.com. S- switching over to some KU basketball talk. Uh, obviously, we just had the second scrimmage this past weekend on or past week on Wednesday. Um, one thing I'm curious on, what do you think is a potential bigger pitfall, a bigger downfall for this KU team? Would it be a possible injury with kind of a lack of depth or would it be more concerns over three point shooting? Which of those two do you think could be more problematic this year? I'm going to say injury. You know, I, I like the, the shooting on the court. Um, you know, a lot of the shooting is on the younger end, but I kind of got the feeling uh, I need to tell Marco shoot a little more, but it feels like all three of the freshmen can shoot the ball pretty well. Um, and El Marco is, I think, pretty good. I mean, not as good as Marcus and, and Jamari, but, you know, I, I think if those guys, at least two of those guys can be rotation players or even play good minutes, you're looking at a team that I feel like has pretty good shooting. Um, the one thing, like I said, like you said, the pitfall, I think, would be injuries because there are a little bit, you know, at the wing spot, I think they're a little thinner than other positions. So if, like, for example, Kevin McCullough went down, I feel like KU is really hurt by the lack of his presence. Um, obviously, if Hunter Diggins went down, you know, that'd be the worst. But, like, if I could pick somebody outside of uh, Dickinson, I think Kevin McCullough going down or DeWan Harris going down. But really, I think Kevin is, is a huge, huge key to this this team and, and he's the real like you know experienced wing that they can go out there and, and play him at the at the three um and you get great defense you get a guy that can average 10 11 a game and i think averages seven rebounds a game so you know if, if he went down i think KU would be a little in a, a tough position because then you're relying on guys like marcus adams and uh Jamari McCall are, are, you know, playing two or three guards at once um which makes him play a little out of position and, and uh out of uh black i think with the lineups is there a player that you've been most impressed by or uh, I guess one of the new players that you've been most impressed by so far over the first two camp scrimmages? Oh, that's a, a good question. Um, I think there's a, a tie uh, between, so, like, you know, I, I didn't know what to expect with Hunter Dickinson, but, like, it feels like it's effortless with him. You know, like, last game, I felt like he didn't even touch the ball that much, and I looked at the stat sheet, and it's 19 points, and it kind of just shows you, how much of a superstar he is, even though it feels like he's not that good that day. You can stop the stat sheet. Um, but I don't think the answer is him in that scenario. I think he's just, you know, even better than advertised, in my opinion, at least from what I saw. Um, but I think the, the player that I've been impressed by is El Marco and Marcus. Those two guys are really all the freshmen I think I've been impressed by. Obviously, it's tough to take anything away from two scrimmages. But, I mean, you know, Marcus was a late riser in his class. There was, you know, rumblings that, you know, KU didn't, know if they wanted him until late and you know they offer him and then he just as soon as he gets the Kansas offer it feels like his stock continues to go up he had you know 40 point games at the ball is live tournament etc 
And, um, you know, he can clearly score the hell out of the ball. You know, he's a three-level scorer. You could see that. Um, I was really impressed with that uh, crossover step back three. I was like, oh, that's pretty. Um, he had a couple times where he cut to the basket that I was like, okay, that's like good fundamental basketball. And you don't see that a lot of freshmen, you know, he knew where to be at the right spot, which I wasn't expecting to be at this early. Um, El Marco, oh, my God, I haven't seen a quicker first step in a long time for a freshman. He was just fearless going to the rim, it felt like. Um, and I was just super, super impressed with um, everything that he was doing. Um, and, you know, he, he kind of came out and, and showcased that he can be more than a passer. He can be a little bit of everything. And, and there's a clear reason why he's viewed as a one- or two-year guy. And Jamari, I mean, you know, he can shoot the hell out of the ball. I mean, I was just super impressed. He's going to be the best shooter of those three. And, you know, it feels like he doesn't need a lot of space, and he creates his own space. And um, he's been great. I've kind of waffled back and forth on who I think – because right now, if, if you viewed the, the main seven with, I don't know, El, Tar- uh, El Marco, Arterio, uh, Dewan, Timberlake, KJ, Kevin, mm. and, and Hunter, uh, so those would be your main seven. If you're playing an eight-man rotation, that would leave one spot. And I've kind of waffled back and forth whether I think it would be Jamari McDowell or Marcus Adams right now. Like, on one hand, I, I feel like with Marcus Adams, he maybe has the higher ceiling, and he is maybe mm-hmm. the better overall player, overall score in that, like, the ceiling for Marcus Adams eventually down the road, maybe in year two or year three, is an all-Big 12 player, is a, a potential, I don't know, like all-American yeah. candidate maybe even. Whereas with McDowell, I feel like the ceiling might be a little bit lower, but I wonder if the floor might be higher right off the bat in terms of role. Like, if, if you're the eighth man on a team, if you're just coming in to play defense and hit some threes, like that might be better for the rotation than Marcus Adams to where – I kind of am waffling between those two guys uh, for, for that last rotation spot. Uh, how would you peg or, or where would you go with, I guess, your way too early prediction of, of who would win that battle? You know, I am a big Marcus Adams guy. I've been really impressed with his play. I think he's going to be a really, really, really good player. And like you said, an all-Big 12 level player, you can see the flashes. You can clearly see could be a guy. Um, and, and he's been confident. I mean, like since the first time I talked to him, He's talked about how the coaches view him as a Jalen Wilson replacement. And that's, that's, those are big words for a freshman. I mean, even the coaches said that, they came out and say, and he'd be frank about it. And I really respect that. You know, I think he's very grateful for the opportunity for Kansas and just everything. I've been really impressed by him. Um, I think, like you said, Jamari has a role uh, that could be fit in quicker. I think it's come down to, and I, I lean Marcus on this just because I think he does more on the court well um, than Jamari does and has a higher ceiling. Um, I think it's going to come down to how much shooting does KU need? Are they lacking shooting? Then Jamari's going to get that role. Are they, you know, okay with shooting, but they need everything else? Um, then Marcus will get the role. And, and that's kind of how I view it. And I think they could be, he could be one of those guys where it, it starts off as Jamari with more minutes, but Marcus kind of plays him in the rotation as the season goes along. And we saw with Ernest uh, last year, um, you know, kind of, battling for some minutes and stuff like that. But I think he's a guy that year two, year three is going to be very special. We're talking with Shreyas Lada of the Kansas City Star here on Rock Shock Sports Talk. Uh, Parker Brown wasn't there yesterday, so I guess or on Wednesday. Uh, Michael Jankovic, Justin Cross were injured. But I, I think the biggest, uh, I guess, I, I don't know, no show makes it sound like that they, they forgot about it or something. But uh, the biggest person who wasn't there that was most notable and you know, we, we put out the, the stats on, on our Twitter page and got a couple comments. Where was Artario Morris? Where was Artario Morris, right? Uh, he missed the camp scrimmage on Wednesday. I know he's got trial stuff upcoming or 
maybe ongoing. So I'm just kind of under the assumption that that would be why. But I also believe his trial is set for, I think, like early August, which would mean, obviously, he would not be able to make the Puerto Rico trip as well. And going back to the camp scrimmages with, with the first step of El Marco Jackson and how athletic and how good he looked, uh, obviously there's, there's probably pretty big competition between El Marco Jackson and Arterio Morris to maybe get a few more minutes here or there as, as being the backup point guard or, or maybe getting more minutes at the two or whatever it is. How much of an impact do you think this could have on, on all this uh, off-the-court stuff for Arterio Morris in terms of you know, whether it's keeping him from developing more chemistry with the guys or keeping him from the coaching staff or keeping him from campus that maybe could give El Marco Jackson the edge in terms of playing time come uh, the start of the year? Yeah, I, I think it, it definitely hurts a little bit because this team is so new and you want that uh, edge anyway you can get it. You know, more playing time, more chance to kind of build relationships with the guys in the court and off the court. Um, like, obviously, like, it is a little bit of a tough situation for Terrio, I think, in the sense of, like, yeah, you want to be out there, but you have to take care of business off the court first. Uh, but I, I thought it was really interesting in the sense of, like, Marco. it seems like he can play different styles. And I, I didn't realize that until the second scrimmage where I felt like he almost made it a point that I can go score when I want to score. I just don't look to score as much as I, you know, have in the first game. Like, he didn't do, look to score as much. He was passing the ball. He was facilitating more. Um, which I thought was super impressive. I want to see Arterio if he can, you know, facilitate the level that uh, Amarco does. It's clear that he can score to that level and be really good at it. I think it's going to be really fascinating that battle because that that, that shooting guard, point guard spot, the backup spots are, are really, I think, going to be really highly contested, and it's going to be a fun summer. I think just trying to figure out who who's going to be starting and who you know gets the role down the line, maybe or who's the backup. But um, I definitely think it'll have a little bit of effect. Yeah, and I definitely think both will play a good amount of minutes, but who knows? Maybe it's one guy ends up playing 26 and the other's, you know, 21, 22. And if that is the slight edge, who knows? Or, or those, you know, five, six minutes where Dewan's not on the floor, which one's going to be the backup point guard? Maybe that's the difference there. I don't know. Uh, speaking further on Arterio there, I, I don't know. Maybe this is a question you don't know the answer to, and that that's totally fine. Do you think there is any chance at all that he does have to serve some sort of suspension at the beginning of the year? I, I, so kind of just the, you know, from what I've talked to around sources around the program, it doesn't seem like it. Um, there is just, uh, you know, they did their due diligence into it, and uh, it looks like just based off what Texas not suspending him and, and Kansas picking him up, it doesn't look like, uh, you know, he'll have to suspend, get suspended. Um, obviously, it's too early to tell and things can change, but just talking to some people about it, um, it seems like they're pretty, adamant that he'll be okay uh with everything that's gonna happen at court okay well that would be a uh, chip in on his side to, to get on the court early on in the season not have to worry about kind of bouncing back uh i do have one last question for you it is the ultimate question that everybody wants to know right now i think even uh the british royalty is talking about this what percentage would you put on kansas taking another scholarship player at this point oh okay i think uh, I want to say like 40, 55%. I was going to say 45, but I, I think there's like, I can lean either way, 45 or 55. I think they're going to take one more. I just think they need uh, another like wing really. Um, and I think they'll probably look at the portal or, or something. I, I, I'm curious to pick up because it feels like it's starting to get sparse pickings, but um, I wonder, I think there is a little bit of a, a longer timeline for graduate transfers. So 
if some guys enter the portal late, maybe they get picked up, or maybe they get to pick up a, a guy who's late in the 23 class, or you know, even 24 class who classifies. Um, but I, I do think they pick up a player. Um, I know Bill said he loves his roster, but um, I think he knows 10 is, is tough to play on, 10 scholarship players, unless he expects some of the walk-ons to play minutes in case of injuries. Yeah, and uh, to your point, I think you know some guys, they might have to graduate during the summer so they can be a grad transfer. Uh, and, and you mentioned something there, just a quick follow-up to that. So you think wing or maybe guard would be more likely than, I don't know, like a big man? I think, I think wing is probably the most likely to not go maybe big man and then guard. I think they have enough guards, honestly, and they don't really need another guard there. Or if they do pick up another guard, it might be a, guy, uh, a combo, like 2-3 almost, like Kevin McCullough type. Um, you know, where they're tall enough to play the two or three. But I, I'd be really surprised if they picked up, uh, like, a point guard and it, a guy who plays point guard and shooting guard because there's just four different guys that could really play both those positions. He is Shreyas Lada. You can check out all his work in the Kansas City Star and at KansasCity.com, including his uh, recent mailbag, or ask him questions for his next mailbag. Shreyas, I, I appreciate the time as always, man, and I hope you have a good weekend. Uh, thanks, man. Thank you two guys, and I appreciate having you. Having me. Sorry. Absolutely. Anytime. All right. The Trace Lotta of the Kansas City Star, KansasCity.com, joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. About a quarter till four, you're listening to RCST on KLWN. Depend on it. Four o'clock hour. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. You're listening on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Coming up at 5 o'clock, we are going to switch over to some more KU football talk. We'll get to our KU football Friday question of the day when uh, we'll be talking about what KU football players have a path to being a possible All-American this year? Who would be the most likely players for KU with or without um, Jalen Daniels? So we'll do that coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. Also some Kevin... McCuller Audio. We also have a lie detector test coming up later this hour. But right now, it is time for our sports stock market. And this week on the sports stock market, we begin with Connecticut, specifically stocks down on UConn financially being able to go to the uh, to the Big Twelve, or you know, uh, for UConn because. The uh, UConn Athletic Department was reportedly $53 million in debt in 2022. And according to the Hartford Current in 2019, the Huskies would have to pay a $30 million exit fee to leave the Big East. So they're already $53 million in debt. You'd have to pay an extra $30 million to leave the Big 12. Yeah, you'd be getting paid more money. And I guess that's that's what they have to come through. Like, I don't know how much they, they get paid in media rights fees from the Big East with not having football. I don't know. It might only be $10 million or something like that. And if you go to the Big 12, you know, maybe making that extra $20, 25000000 million a year in media rights deals is enough to warrant you leaving the conference because you basically would be saying, well, we pay for most of that Big East exit fee in year one, and then we'd have it all paid off by year two, and maybe we could put a bigger dent into our financial debt in the athletic department. But then again, for somebody who's $50 million in debt, it's hard to be like, yeah, let's almost double that by leaving the conference and paying the uh, the rights fee to leave that. So that does make it very tricky for a school that certainly it seems like there is interest from the Big 12 perspective. And I wonder if from the Big 12 side of things, uh, UConn is independent in football. 
I wonder from Brett Yormark's perspective, he's like, I'd like to just add them for basketball. I don't know how much they're going to bring to the football side of things. Then we don't have to maybe pay them as much. From UConn's perspective, I wonder if they're like, no, we're only going to join if we get invited in all sports to where we can make that full money to help pay off some of this stuff. So certainly that'll be a hurdle if the Big 12 really does want UConn. Stock is down on the Royals' rebuild. Obviously, Vinny Pasquantino injured, shoulder surgery. He's out for the entire season. On top of it, Frank Mozzicato, who's been one of their more impressive prospects, he's injured right now. And then it's not like there's a next wave of players right now. In the latest Baseball America update, the Kansas City Royals have zero top 100 prospects. On top of it, they don't pick till eighth this year in the draft. On top of that, they're also bad. And they're probably going to be in the lottery again next year, which now the MLB lottery, you have, you're not even guaranteed. You could have the worst record. You're not even guaranteed a top six pick. Now, maybe they end up with the number one pick, but then to make matters worse, as part of the new CBA, you are not eligible to be part of the lottery if you are in it three straight years. Okay? So that means that the Royals by 2025 might, like they could have one of the six worst records and they don't even get a chip. They don't even get a shot at making one of the top six picks, at making the first pick in the draft, meaning that you don't even have a reason to be bad. You don't even get rewarded for it. So they don't have good prospects coming up. They're very, very bad right now. They have the worst record in the MLB. They don't pick till eighth this year. They don't have the next wave of players. Some of their current best players are injured or not performing well. What else could be worse for the Kansas City Royals? Stock is down. I mean, it seems like stock could not get further, but it is, it's getting to a point where it's like a penny a share right now. Maybe in that situation, though, you should buy into the stock because it can't get much lower than this. Although, I think we all know from the David Beatty years, from the Charlie Weiss years of KU football, on and on and on through the KU football doldrums, whenever you say, oh, it can't get much worse than this, oh, this is rock bottom, typically there is another level of rock bottom. Sometimes... Rock bottom can be worse than rock. Like, there can be uh, levels worse than rock bottom just because you stay at rock bottom. If you stay at rock bottom for multiple years, it makes it worse, even though it's the same level. Stock is up on hypocrisy. So, uh, there's this guard who, I think Simeon Wilcher or something like that is his name, for North Carolina, top 40 recruit in the country, decommitted from Florida, or, or from North Carolina, and Armando Baycott, the returning big man, star big man for uh, North Carolina, called him out and uh, for decommitting, saying that he was running from the grind. Meanwhile, if you would remember, North Carolina did not make the NCAA tournament. They did, however, get invited to the National Invitation Tournament, the NIT. Did they decide to play in it? No. Sounds like they were running from the grind. Hmm. A little bit of hypocrisy there. Maybe that's just me. Uh, stock is up on lists. The name Baby Gronk has been launched around a lot over the last week or so. And honestly, maybe this should be stocks down on parenting. A lot of great parents out there. Parenting is hard. I get that. Uh, Baby Gronk's dad, I feel comfortable being like, uh, you know, I, I'm never one of those people who's like, oh, you know, you're out in public and somebody's kid does this or that. I'm never going to be somebody who's like, 
you know, maybe you should do this or go lecture. Like, no, every parent does their own thing. They do things differently and they have a reason for it. And, you know, let them parent. Obviously, there are levels to that, right? If a, if a parent is doing something that is child abuse or something, right? Like, that's right. Nonetheless, uh, we don't need to get into that. Um, this thing with baby Gronk, basically, he is this 10-year-old football player who has these, like, highlight films of him running over people and all this sort of stuff. Really good, like, youth football player, right? His dad is basically living vicariously through him to where he is basically, like, there's literally this podcast interview. It's this clip. It's the most cringeworthy thing of all time. And they're asking Baby Gronk questions, you know, and he's answering them normally. And then his dad will stop him and be like, no, this is what you should say. And they'll be like, hey, can you re-ask the question? And he'll re-ask the question. And instead of the kid answering normally, he'll say something like, oh, I got all these girls, and I got all these cars. And it's just... It's it's so it's so cringeworthy and, and so terrible what you're doing. We we've seen the whole Todd Marinovich story and how that played out, and this is like that. And there's no guarantee that you know, athletically, genetically, you're going to ever progress past you know even the high school level, for instance. Uh, but he released a list, and obviously this is not real, with over a hundred schools on it for uh, his call. Obviously, it was just a publicity thing. There's no way any schools have actually offered. It. Kansas was on the list for what it's worth, so. Uh, Kansas, Baby Gronk in, what would that be, like 2031? Mark it down, maybe, the way they're rolling and recruiting? Sure, why not? But no, uh, stock is up on lists because over 100. Stock is down on parenting because of that whole situation. Uh, stock is up on angry texts because on Apple, they are going to be, I don't know if this is part of the new iPhones or if this is just part of the new software update, but uh, no more ducks. I'll just leave it at that. No more, you know, oh, what the duck, right? You're, you just got, you're so mad about waddling and webbed feet and all that sort of stuff. No more of that because uh, it won't autocorrect anymore. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, stock is up on Jokic continuing to not care about winning the NBA Finals MVP. So after the NBA Finals, Nikola Jokic goes and interviews with one of the sideline reporters. And, you know, it's basically like, we got the job done. Now we can go home. Uh, then at the at the uh, press conference, podium interview, whatever you want to call it, with the press, uh, he gets asked about the parade and turns to what I can only assume is like the sports information director type person for the Nuggets and goes, wait, we have a parade? And he's like, when is it? And he's like, Thursday. And he puts his his head in his hands is like, no, I got to go home. And, he, you know, then he's on the NBA TV desk afterwards and he's talking about how, yeah, he has his horses racing on, on like Saturday and. He's trying to convince the the Nuggets, uh, the guy who runs the team, to let him borrow his private jet and everything like that. Um, then on top of that, he also didn't really, like you saw during the award ceremony, he gets finals MVP and you get basically like a miniature version of the NBA finals trophy as, as winning that award. He just, after he does his interview holding it, he just leaves it on the desk and walks to the back of the stage and he's just like holding his uh, baby daughter and just doesn't really care about the, the trophy. Uh, then he was asked by Malika Andrews uh, something. I don't know. They were doing an interview. And he said he lost the finals MVP trophy. He said, I really don't know. I left it in the equipment manager's room, and it's not there anymore. So I don't know. Now, the Nuggets had their parade yesterday. It was a lot of fun. Mike Malone was definitely intoxicated, um, having a good time. You know, sports parades are just supposed to be fun. They are fun. I think I saw like 700,000 to a million people were estimated in attendance, which is just bonkers how many people were there. Uh, you had 
all sorts of guys having a good time and having fun. Jamal Murray having fun. They did have on one of the buses the trophies, and it looked like the both the MVP trophy and the finals trophy were there. So my guess is that the staff knew that Jokic didn't really care that much about it. And somebody just grabbed it and was like, hey, we should probably keep this somewhere for safekeeping because otherwise he's going to lose it, which I guess technically he did. I wonder if he just, because that thing's just going to get lost in his garage. Maybe they'll give it to him or maybe he'll just be like, you know what? You guys can keep it. You can display it somewhere in the arena. I feel like that's probably best for everyone. Uh, By the way, speaking of that um, parade that the Nuggets had, how about Christian Brown, man? He was feeling it on that parade. He had the the shirt off. He was wearing like the WWE belt. He popped up at some like restaurant or bar and started like serving people like tequila shots, like straight from the bottle. Uh, I saw one clip of him like sprinting, showing his hustle, I guess, like getting high fives and stuff from people in attendance. He was, he was certainly having a good time, but yeah, man, Jokic just, he doesn't really care about the, the awards or anything like that. He did say, uh, actually at the parade, like he was like, I know I said earlier, I didn't care about the parade, but, um, I guess going back to the duck comment, he uh, said something along those lines and uh, was basically like, I'm so glad I'm at the parade and stuff like that. So I, I do think it's it's probably a little overblown. Like, I don't think he doesn't care at all. Like, obviously, he wanted to win it all. He is a competitor. It is his sport. I just think there is a difference for him in that basketball is not the be-all, end-all for him. He does have other things in his life that are more important. And I think there's something is kind of admirable about that because sports at the end of the day are kind of a distraction and entertainment. It's not the be-all everything. So, uh, but it was, it was cool to see kind of both sides of it from uh, Jokic there. All right, and last up, stock is up on NBA summer headlines. Um, whether it was the Nuggets parade and Jokic, today John Morant got suspended for 25 games. The way that they were billing it up, it felt like it was going to be like a full season or 50 games or something. Um, I, I saw somebody point out that uh, the old man, the best old man take to possibly have out there is that NBA the NBA, if they're suspending someone, the suspension punishment should actually be they make the players play regular season games. Uh, I thought that was kind of funny. But, yeah, he's suspended 25 games, so that'll be interesting. Uh, but there's a lot of other stuff going on right now. Like, what's Kyrie Irving going to do? He's a free agent. He's going to go back to the Mavs. He obviously talked about LeBron wanting to go there. Is he going to go to the Lakers and team up with LeBron? Uh, is he going to go to the Miami Heat? Apparently, they tried to trade for him at the deadline. Then you have Bradley Beal, who finally asked for a trade. It feels like... He's been on the precipice of, or, or like people have been like, well, would Bradley Beal want to get traded? He's on a bad Wizards team, but it seemed like he's just been content putting up points on a bad team and getting massive paydays, which I, I don't really blame someone for. Uh, but it seems like that finally, you know, hit uh, a point where he wants to go somewhere else and maybe he's asking for a trade. Like, where's that going to end up as? Then you have Damian Lillard and all this. Is he going to get traded? Where is he going to get traded? The Heat could be very active in all this. Seems like they're interested in Beal and or Lillard or... Uh, you know, maybe Kyrie Irving or whoever it is. You had the Kendrick Perkins comments about John Morant and the Heat and stuff. Uh, and then you have the uh, possible idea that the Pelicans might trade Zion Williamson. There's obviously all the off-the-court stuff going on with him, and they haven't been able to really get him on the court either for a myriad of different reasons. They're interested in getting one of the number two or number three picks to probably take, like, Scoot Henderson. Do they end up trading Zion? Do they end up trading Brandon Ingram? What does that mean for the Trailblazers, right? Do they go for it? Do they... Do they trade the third pick for Zion Williamson and try to get a healthy Zion and figure that Damian Lillard and Zion might be enough to to really contend? Or what do the Pelicans do? How good are the Pelicans, right? Like, there's a lot going on that you can already tell we're going to get a lot of good storylines. We usually do. I mean, for a lot of people, they care more about the NBA storylines and the free agency and the trades and the drama than they do the actual games. Well, this is right up that alley. So uh, stock is up on NBA summer headlines. 
I guess also Victor Wembanyama is not playing in the uh, summer league. That was a bit of a summer headline too. All right, this is uh, Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN. We'll get to some uh, news on San Diego State coming up next, and then our lie detector test after that. Welcome back in to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN. I'm Derek Johnson, flying solo today. No Nick Springer, he abandoned me. But nonetheless, we will continue on with another edition of the lie detector test here where we figure out who we think is lying, maybe fibbing a little bit. There are a lot of lies in sports, whether it's to you know protect something that sometimes it makes sense that they lie other times. I don't know, maybe a little too much. All right, first one is Josh McDaniels on the lie detector test this week, the head coach for the Las Vegas Raiders. Uh, this was his comment on the injury stuff that came out about Jimmy Garoppolo and the Raiders quarterback position and where things are at with Jimmy G. He didn't pass his physical and had to get an exemption due to, I think it was like a, a foot injury. He said, quote, I have no anxiety. You guys may have anxiety. I have no anxiety. All right, so first of all, um, I, I have no anxiety. Everybody has anxiety about something, right? Everybody gets worked up about at least a little bit of something. So that part is clearly a lie. Um, and then maybe because he's overcompensating so much, saying, I never get, I I have no anxiety. Uh, I, I think this is a lie. Why would you not have anxiety about a, a position where you're not, I mean, you have by far the, the worst quarterback position. Well, I guess I shouldn't say by far, because we'll see what happens with Russell Wilson and Sean Payton. But you have seemingly the worst on paper quarterback position, whether it's your starter or the entire group of quarterbacks you have in your division. And you have probably one of the bottom five in the entire AFC, right? I mean, think about all the great quarterbacks in the AFC. Like, you could get to your seventh or eighth best quarterback and it be a possible, like, Pro Bowl guy. Uh, so, first of all, don't have a great position. Second of all, you have a guy who, again, did not pass his physical and had to get an exemption for that to be able to play, who's coming off an injury last year. You have zero anxiety about this? I don't buy it. I think this is the classic, you know, coach, if you were getting him on an honest scale, he would probably tell you, but you understand why he's lying because he's not going to go out in the media and say, oh, yeah, I'm very worried. I don't trust Jimmy Garoppolo. No, that's not going to go well with your locker room. That's not going to go well with Jimmy G. Uh, so I understand the lie, but it is a lie. Brett Yormark, last Friday. Actually, this will put a couple people on the lie detector test. Brett Yormark last Friday um, was supposedly there were some people that saw him meeting with Brass from Memphis. And there were some reports about, I think, I, I forget exactly who. I don't, I don't want to miss sight who said it, just in case. Um, but that, that, yeah, there were like physical proof of, of people seeing him meeting with Memphis Brass and Obviously, people would take that to be like, oh, could Memphis be a future addition for the Big 12, right? There are certain reasons that that would make sense. They've been a high enough profile basketball team, right? Whether it was with John Calipari or, you know, they had some decent years with John Pastner. They've had some decent years here with Penny Hardaway. They've always been just like, a, you know, at least a decent basketball team with potential for more. They have FedEx money. There, There's a lot of, I don't know, it's a big, uh, big enough TV environment um, from the... Uh, perspective of, of being in Memphis, you have the additive nature of they've been a good football school and that you'd have another travel partner for, you know, maybe your Cincinnati's, your, I don't know, those types of schools, right? So it makes some sense. But then there was a report from Pete Thamel on Friday 
just spoke to Big 12 Commissioner Brett Yormark about the multiple multiple reports that the Big 12 has met with Memphis. Quote, I've never met with anyone at Memphis about adding them to the Big 12, nor have I been on campus. Okay, so first of all, that quote from Brett Yormark. I've never met with anyone at Memphis. I mean, the people who were saying it was some, uh, I guess, high enough profile journalist that I don't know that why they would lie about this. I kind of think this is a lie from Brett Yormark. And then you saw it was like Pete Thamel, I think Dennis Dodd, I don't know. There were a couple uh, different reporters who quickly got out there about like, oh, he's never met with Memphis. This reads off to me as, so unfortunately, this is how a lot of journalism works nowadays. And, you know, I'm not necessarily blaming the, I don't know. It's, it's, It's an unfortunate situation. This isn't how everything works, but there is a lot of, you see this with like Adam Schefter, for instance. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. I'll release some exclusive thing to you, or I'll give you some sort of big-time breaking news down the road if you do this for me. Right? So, Adam Schefter, if you talk about, oh, this guy's been playing well, this team's planning on, you know, not re-signing him, but he should have a great free agent market, even if he doesn't, just to, you know, try to rile up some conversation and maybe help that out, right? Um Brett Yormark texting a couple guys who are in the know on the Big 12 stuff to be like, hey, can you cover my tracks here? And then I'll give you a good scoop later on in the process when something does emerge from, you know, Big 12 expansion talks or something like that. So I think this whole thing is a sham. I think this whole thing is a lie. I think Pete Thamel is lying here. I think Dennis Dodd's lying here. I think Brett Yormark's lying here. Y'all liars on this edition of Lie Detector Test. Uh, Next up is Adrian Hauser, the Brewers starting pitcher on the Oakland A's. I think everyone forgets they're a major league baseball team. Doesn't matter what the record is. If their organization doesn't want to win, that's on them. They're still competitors. They're still going to beat you every time. To be clear, the Oakland A's are on fire right now. They ended up sweeping the Milwaukee Brewers in that series, and they've won seven of their last 10 games. Uh, the record's still bad, 19 and 52. Run differential still very bad, minus 196. Which, like, out of comparison, as bad as the Royals have been, and the Royals actually have, you know, the they're 18 and 50, um, which is slightly behind the A's. Like, the A's have a 268 winning percentage. The Royals are 265. Both have been very bad. But the A's have a minus 196 run differential. The Royals are at minus 107. So, like... It could be even worse, I guess, is what I'm saying for the A's. Maybe it could be slightly better for the Royals. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, I guess it's truthful. They're a Major League Baseball team. You know, they're still competitors. They're still going to try to beat you every time. Yeah, that's all true. Um, I think everyone forgets they're a Major League Baseball team, though. Eh, That's not a lie. People know they're a Major League Baseball team. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't know them. You know, how how many people do you see going around that know the name of, like, all the AAA teams? Guarantee you, most people would know all the name of the Oakland A's, like that, that it was a professional organization that was part of the MLB. Uh, this is just always funny to me, though, when you get like very point blank ways of saying, like, in its own, the sentence, they're a major league baseball team, means nothing. But you're basically saying it to try to get across that, like, oh, they have, you know, of course they could beat us. They're, they're professionals, right? But it means nothing. You see this a lot in the NFL. You know, it's like, oh, in the National Football League, anybody can get you. You get all this, like, coach speak, and that's exactly what this is. So I guess most of this is truthful. It's just uh, very funny to see another player say it. 
J.J. Piccolo is the, uh, I guess, front office guy for the Kansas City Royals. Here's what he had to say on the report that Kansas City could trade Salvador Perez. Quote, we have no intention of trading Salvi. It's not something we're looking to do, but it doesn't mean that teams won't ask about him. I can confirm that report was accurate. A team called and asked about him. Now, I guess what goes into this is it's a very sticky situation in terms of Salvador Perez by playing over a decade with the Kansas City Royals has certain no-trade clause rights where he's allowed to veto certain trades. I forget if that's entire vetoes or if it's just he just gets to pick like 10 teams to veto, but you know, realistically with the amount of money he's making and aging catcher, like are there going to be 12 teams that offer a good uh, good enough offer for you to take it and you're going to have to pick between 12 different great offers and now he's only going to be able to deny 10 of them and you'll pick one of the other two. No, like that's not how this works. You might only get uh you know, six offers and then of the six Two of them are horrible. Two of them are, ah, that's okay. And then two of them are like, okay, I would accept those. And then he could deny those. So that does make this difficult to where if you know deep down Salvador Perez has said in the past, and this is true, that he wants to be a Kansas City Royal for life. And so that you know it's going to be difficult to ever get him to waive that no trade clause and unless he gets to a point where he comes to you and says, "I please trade me to a contender I want to win again then there's no point in you coming out and saying, yeah, we're shopping him or, or yeah, we're looking at trading him because all it's going to do is upset him. It might upset the locker room when you know deep down it's never going to happen. So uh, him saying it's not something we're looking to do, I do kind of believe that. Um, I, I think it really is up to Salvador Perez because of that. Now, if Salvador Perez did not have the no trade clause abilities in all this, I would kind of think that's a lie. I wouldn't view it as they're, they're gung-ho on trading him. But I would definitely view it as, yeah, we're, we're, we're absolutely listening to offers. We're absolutely shopping him because he is an aging catcher. He is making a good amount of money. The Royals are very bad. Like, get something back for him if you can. Probably should have got more proactive with it and, and got out in front of it a few years ago before the no-trade clause stuff went. But then again, you can understand the sentimentality of it. And Salvador Perez has been kind of that one shining beacon at this point for the Royals. And I guess I never really do blame a team for holding on to a player who is good and um, is a fan favorite because at the end of the day, you still are trying to play entertaining baseball and get fans at the stadium and, you know, make money and be more entertaining for people to care about and watch and buy jerseys. So I, I don't totally blame the Royals if, if they don't trade him away or anything. But, yeah, I, I do kind of believe this to be the case. Uh, Trey Young on Twitter after the Denver Nuggets won Game 5 of the NBA Finals to clinch the series, win the NBA title over the Miami Heat. Took to Twitter and said, We next. We next at what? You think Trey Young fired off this tweet? He was like in line at like a deli. You know, you take your number. 95. Like, oh, I'm 96. Better fire off a tweet. We're next. <laughs> Do you think that Trey Young honestly believes this? Um, from that standpoint, I would say that, yes, he probably does honestly believe this. I don't think he is lying, but I think it will end up being a lie because I, there ain't no way. No, this ain't happening with the Hawks, right? They were what the seven seed in the playoffs, six seed, whatever it was, um, no, they're not good enough to do this. Now, maybe all of a sudden the Hawks make a trade and. You know, there, there are some really good players that are available um, in the trade market, as we kind of discussed with uh, sports stock market. Like, 
could you do something for Bradley Beal? Could you do like DeJounte Murray and, and some other pieces for Bradley Beal? Could you do whatever, DeJounte Murray, John Collins and some pieces for like Zion Williamson and take that risk and hope that Trey Young and Zion Williamson, I mean, that'd be a dynamic pick and roll combination there. And maybe that could change things. Maybe it could. But like part of this too is a Trey Young issue. You look at the last, I, I think it's the last three or four NBA champions, and they're all teams who pass the ball a lot and pass the ball well. The ball sticks with Trey Young. It does. He's not a great defender, really exciting player, really talented player overall, not like an ultra-efficient player or anything like that. I think there's more to it than, you know, it, it, it's not like the the Hawks have been this burgeoning superstar team that, yeah, they were a two-seed this year. Like, I would get more on board with this if this was, obviously, there's the other stuff going on for John Morant, so he probably shouldn't be firing off a tweet, nor did he. But, like, if, if the Grizzlies, if John Morant tweeted out, you know, we next, like, that would make more sense. Right? Like, they're kind of, they've been that one and two seed range. Like, maybe if they make that one addition. But the Hawks, it's like, dude, you, like, barely made the playoffs last uh, last year. And the year before, you missed the playoffs, right? What are we doing here? So, I don't think he's lying. He honestly believes it. But, yes, that will end up being a lie. Uh, Yankees manager Aaron Boone said Tuesday on the Talking Yanks podcast that they're not, not considering optioning Anthony Volpe to the minors. You might not know who Anthony Volpe is, which is fine. He's a rookie who was one of the highest-rated prospects coming up. He had unbelievable numbers in the minors. He's only 22 years old. I think he just turned 22 years old, uh, I don't know, maybe a few weeks ago or something like that. Um, but, yeah, just absolutely killed it like uh, at the minor league level. In I, I guess I shouldn't say killed it at the minor league level in 2022, but he showed a lot where he had you know over 20 home runs. He had like 50 stolen bases over an 800 OPS. He was a really good player. He was a really good player. And he came into spring ball and performed really well at spring training. So it was like, you know, he did that at 21 years old. What's he going to do now in year 22? And he has really struggled. He's hitting 192. He's got 623 OPS. He, uh, if you're looking at OPS plus, he's well below league average in terms of, um, what he's done compared to his ballpark then compared to the rest of the league. Like he's been one of the, in terms of guys who are getting like pretty much every day at bats, which he pretty much is. He's been one of the worst hitters in the majors. Like his WRC plus is 71. That means he's, you know, almost 30% below league average at this point. He's just struggling to hit. He's struggling to hit. He's striking out too much, striking out 30% of the time. Like it's just kind of a problem for what he's doing right now. Uh, I think this is a lie. This goes into the same conversation as Josh McDaniels, where it's like, is your, if you're a head coach, if you're a manager, you're not going to, in public, try to ridicule someone and be like, yeah, he's really close to dropping down to AAA. If he goes 0 for 4 tomorrow, see ya. Because all that's going to do is it's going to ruin the confidence of that player. But realistically, this is a Yankees team that has playoff and World Series aspirations. And the more that you go with a real hole in your lineup, who's been one of the worst hitters, again, of getting you know, consistent at bats, the more you go with that in your lineup and, and just consistently getting outs there for a team that does have those intentions, the more it does become likely that, yeah, it wouldn't shock me if at some point here in a few weeks he did get optioned down if things don't change. But you try to make that last push. You try to give him that extra confidence. Let him know that, yeah, even though you're not playing well, don't worry. We know the potential's in you. Like, keep your confidence up, and, and you hope that the results come around. 
Okay, this one from uh, Rob Manfred. So if you missed earlier this week, the Oakland A's had a, uh, I forget exactly what they called it. It was a reverse boy boycott where they basically, um, instead of like nobody showing up because of the lack of resources into the, the stadium, into the team, uh, just financially from the Oakland A's and their ownership, that they did a reverse boycott where they, they all tried to sell out the stadium. Um, to begin with, the A's, because you might have seen the game and been like, oh, there's, there's you know, a lot of open seats here. Um, they already black out, or block out a lot of the different seats in, like, the upper deck. So the max that they can get is, like, 32,000. I think they ended up with, like, 27, 28,000 for the game. So it was a good showing. It was a good showing. The, the fans were loud. Uh, they made notice of being heard and everything like that. Rob Manfred said this. I mean, it was great. It is great to see what is this year almost an average Major League Baseball crowd in the facility for one night. That's a great thing. So that comes across rather sassy. Uh, that probably should not be coming off from the MLB commissioner. And it continues the idea that Rob Manfred is a very hateable commissioner, I guess would be the way of putting it. Not going to endear yourself with the fans in general. Um, but I don't know that he cares that much, to be completely honest. Uh, this is not a lie. He's he's. This is actually being very honest. So this is actually being very truthful. I will say, though, there is a part of me that kind of can get on board here with the Rob Manfred thing. It does suck that they would be moving the team from the A's and all this stuff. But, like, and, and yes, the ownership has mistreated the organization and the players and all that stuff. I'm not arguing against that. And ideally, yeah, we, we would just have an expansion team, and that would be the Vegas team, and the A's would be fine in Oakland. But he does kind of have a point here. Like, they, they made this big deal about this reverse boycott, and they still didn't sell it out. They had 27,000 fans out of 32,000. A couple years ago, when they were a playoff team, you know what their average was? It was 20,000 people. Right? So it's it's not like the fans have always shown out each and every year. Now, you could make the argument that they've just had bad ownership, and the owners never sign good players. They never sign marketable players. They never re-sign their players. And that is 100% true. And so from that standpoint, I do feel bad for the A's. And, and I do think um, it is unfortunate that you have the commissioner of baseball basically throwing this shade out there like he's a 14-year-old on Twitter quote-tweeting the tweet about the reverse boycott. Like, that should not be happening from the commissioner. There is some truth to it, though. Uh, this last one from Carl Anthony Towns. Um, he is up for three lies this week. First up, he was on the uh, Patrick Beverly podcast. I don't know if he was liquored up or what. I, it feels like there was something in the system to, to get to say these things. Uh, here's one thing he said. When my time is up and I retire... There will be people that say I changed the game. What people? Is Carl Anthony Towns a top 30 player in the NBA? No, probably not. He's a good player. But, like, you just got locked up by Aaron Gordon in the first round of the playoffs. What are we doing here? He also said, if you let me call the plays, I can go get you 40 anytime I want. I do think there's a little more notion to this one because, yeah, okay, if you're calling the plays and you call every play for yourself and you get up 60 shots, sure, you can score 40 points. I do get what he's saying, though. Like, the idea of Cap being a really good player, which, again, he he is. I don't think he's, you know, this all-NBA guy, but he is a good player. Is He is this really offensively skilled player who shoots really well from the big position, right? Like, sure, I can buy into this a little bit more, but this is the biggest lie of them all. On Denver winning the title. It was more special what we did in Minnesota. 
Jokic had what? Four years? We had four months. And that was for the year before where they, they had all these guys who were newcomers. And he's basically saying, oh, they had more continuity. We had to put it together. And even though we lost in the first round of the playoffs, we only had four months to do it. So that's more impressive. No, this does not get graded on a curve. This is not a bell curve. This is not how this works. And guess what? You were not the first team to put together a new team or have all these new additions to come together. That is the biggest lie of them all. Um, the first one is definitely a lie. The third one, I don't know. Kind of 50-50. I'm changing Carl Anthony Towns. I'm changing his last name to something that starts with P. He is no longer Cat. He is Cap. Because that is exactly what that is. And he is uh, the biggest liar of them week, uh, of them all this week. All right, that's our lie detector test. Two hours down, one to go. We got a KU Football Friday question coming at you next. And a little more talk about KU Football recruiting. Nick Marsh visiting, I think, starting today and over the course of the weekend for KU Football. This is RCST. You're listening on KLWN. Depend on it. Five o'clock hour, you're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN, KLWN.com, and the KLWN app. I'm Derek Johnson, flying solo today. Nick Springer uh, out of town. He should be back for uh, Monday's edition of the show. We have some uh, Kevin McCuller audio that we're going to get to you in our next segment here. Before we do that, wanted to talk about, uh, I guess, some big things that are going down this weekend, and then we'll get to our KU Football Friday question for the day here. Uh, the first of which is KU's having even more visitors for football um, attend Lawrence this weekend. They, they've got uh, multiple players that are, are in attendance. Obviously, last week was kind of the mega visit, and they ended up getting you know a handful of commits from the visit uh, to, to commit to the program for the class of 2024. And this week, they're going to be hoping to get some more, I would imagine, for, for next week, and maybe some more of those names will start coming down the pipeline at some point. But um, the biggest of them all, and the name that really was registering and, and certainly getting a lot of people geeked up about what possibly could happen here is Nick Marsh. He is a six foot three, 200 pound receiver who is uh, from Michigan. And obviously KU, it's been no secret that Chris Simpson and uh, the Jayhawks have been able to really establish a pipeline in the Detroit area with uh, some of their latest recruits, including Jalen Todd, Isaiah Marshall, the big quarterback recruit. Marsh has to have been taking notice of what's going on with with some of these high-level players from the state of Michigan committing to KU. He's now visiting Kansas this weekend. He is a four-star recruit. He's uh, just outside the top 100 on the composite, ranked 102nd on the 24-7 sports composite. I mean, uh, this would be a high-level four-star that it seems like KU has a shot. Now, it, it looks like if you you kind of ask around or you, you know, talk to different people who have been in on his recruiting that maybe Penn State is seen as the definitive favorite that Michigan State is seen as another school that maybe is on the favorites list for him. Uh, but it seems like the idea that he's visiting Kansas, and we've seen Kansas be able to clean up some of these these recent recruits, tells you that they're going to have a good shot and that they're going to have all these other you know kids from Michigan, from the Detroit area that might be in his ear about, you know, try to come to KU, that maybe it becomes more of a possibility. So I don't necessarily know that I'm expecting him to commit or anything, but, I mean, uh, you're talking about somebody who – it wouldn't be shocking. Like, I guess that's the point with this KU staff. And that, that's something that I think John Kirby said in our interview uh, j just yesterday on the show was the idea that it's kind of gotten to a point where, you know, it's, it's not that you're necessarily making Kansas the favorite on this kid or that kid, but that you're not going to be surprised anymore if they land X player because of what they're doing right now in recruiting and, and how impressive it has been in, in landing some of these kids that not all of them you expected to end up committing 
to KU. Uh, but this this would be as big of a deal as anybody because as as great of a recruiting class as Kansas has already put together for this upcoming season or for 2024, I should say. I mean, seven top 1,000 commits of your 10 committed, a highest percentage of top 1,000 commits of your commitments as of right now by far that, that you've had since 2010 when the 24-7 uh, sports composite and everything kind of started, um, you know, uh, a bunch of top 800 commits, uh, a couple top 600, top 500 commits. This would be the crown jewel, though, of a class that right now looks like a special class to begin with. Because, again, this is a, a, a just near top 100 recruit. I believe if Nick Marsh were to pick KU, that he would become the... Um, best recruit, the biggest recruit, however you want to put it, in terms of, like, grade that KU has ever landed. He's got a 94.97 grade on his 24-7 sports composite, which I I think on the all-time list, Markel Combs, which that's, you know, flash to the past, right? Uh, But he was a 92.5. So it's like not only would this kid be your best commit that you have ever had in the 24-7 sports composite era, he would be by a wide margin. Uh, the 24-7 sports comparison compares him to Nikhil Harry, big receiver. Now, you might think, oh, Nikhil Harry, he didn't do much. He hasn't done much in the NFL. Okay, but this is from a college perspective. Nikhil Harry ended up being a first-round pick. His uh, last two years of college, he combined for over 2,200 receiving yards on 155 catches with 17 or 18 total touchdowns. So, like, yes, you would gladly sign up for uh, that career in a time of KU. Again, I, I don't know. Penn State might still be the favorite here. Michigan State's in there. There's other schools that obviously he's he's barely, you know, he's, he's basically a top 100 recruit. Obviously, any school is going to be glad to have him and, and try to bring him on board. But for KU, this represents the ultimate opportunity to really keep spinning this cycle forward. Whether they get him or not, the class is already very good, and the class is already better than a lot of other classes we've seen at KU recently over the past decade plus. But this, this right here, this move, if they were able to land Nick Marsh, that would, I think, send shockwaves through the national recruiting landscape and further institute a pipeline in Detroit and be the crown jewel of maybe any recruit that KU has been able to land from the high school level. All right, I want to get on to our uh, KU Football Friday question here. For today, the question, if I told you a player not named Jalen Daniels earned All-American honors at the end of the season, who would you pick? So... Obviously, Jalen would be, if you left it an open forum, Jalen would probably be the number one guy. Now, that's actually an interesting question, though. Would he be? Because at the end of the day, even though Jalen, you view him to be your best player and have your highest potential, and we saw him be an early Heisman candidate last year, would he be number one on the chance to be All-American? If you think about it, you have a bit bit more of an uphill climb in terms of there only being two or three. I I forget if they're second team or third team, All-American teams, right? And there's only one quarterback on each team, you know, whereas with other positions, you might have, you know, three wide receivers or you might have uh, four defensive backs or something like that, that it maybe opens up more opportunity. Like, for instance, Todd Reesing, as great of a season as he had, broke all these Kansas, you know, record books and everything. He uh, wasn't, you know, first team all Big 12 because he was around in a year when there were other really good quarterbacks. There was Sam Bradford. There was you know, Colt McCoy, Graham Harrell, Chase Daniel, right? Where it was going to be really hard to crack those lists. 
So maybe there actually is a case to be made that Jalen isn't the most likely to be on an All-American team, that because, hey, there's two running backs per All-American team. Maybe it would be Devin Neal. Maybe because there's multiple defensive backs. It could be a guy like Kobe Bryant. But I do think um, it's an interesting question to start with in terms of how do you get on an All-American list? Because typically to get on an All-American list, your team has to be really good or you have to like shatter records, right? If you're running back and you run for 2,000 yards and your team goes 6-6, six and six, you're still going to get on there, right? If you are on a team that's 12-0 and 0 and you run for 1,200 yards, you're probably going to be on there. So it's like there is this balance between winning and making an impact. Um, and, and there is that kind of chicken and egg dynamic where it's, well, would KU get an All-American because they won eight or nine games and it got them more notoriety for a player who played well? Or... Would KU be winning eight or nine games because they had an All-American on the roster, right? But, okay, if we if we excuse Jalen Daniels from this question, if I told you a player not named Jalen Daniels earned All-American honors at the end of the season, who would you pick? I think you could make cases. This doesn't necessarily mean that they'd be favored to do so, but you could make cases. You could see paths to, I think, Devin Neal, maybe one of your offensive linemen, Kobe Bryant, Kenny Logan, and then I think there could be a couple dark horses in there like Lawrence Arnold and Mason Fairchild. Let's start with Devin Neal. If if Devin Neal runs for, you know, 1,300 yards, catches another couple hundred, Kansas wins eight or nine games, he's looking like a pro prospect by the end of things, I feel like he very much could end up on an All-American list. I mean, he's already getting a lot of preseason notoriety. He looked at uh, you know, I was reading the Lindy's Sports preseason magazine, and he's on the first team All Big Twelve in the preseason. So like, clearly he's getting notoriety right now. That you would have that attention there, especially if you can win seven, eight, or nine games on the season, and you have that that great statistic season. I think there really is a path there for Devin Neal for sure. Uh, you don't have to worry about you know, like in your own conference, for instance, Eric Gray, Bijan Robinson, Deuce Vaughn. Like all those guys are gone now. Obviously, there's still other good running backs in the conference, and there always are. Um, but there is a real avenue for Devin Neal to do that, right? You get 20 rushing touchdowns if this is an explosive offense and you're just getting to the goal line a lot, even if you run for 1,100 yards with 20 touchdowns on a good offense, like, that could get you there. I think you could make a case for KU's best offensive lineman. Um, I don't know who that would end up being. I thought last year KU's best offensive lineman was Dominic Pooney. Uh, Awards-wise, it ended up going to Mike Nowitzki, and, and I understand that. I, I thought Mike Nowitzki was, you know, probably your number two best offensive lineman last year behind Pooney, but... You could also argue that Mike Nowitzki is your most valuable just because he is the center. He is pointing out protections. He's kind of running the show in the middle. So I, I, I'm totally fine with Mike Nowitzki getting your highest award because I guess in value, maybe that does make him the best offensive lineman on the team. And, and to be clear, both Nowitzki and Pooney are really good players. It'll be interesting to see what happens with Pooney this year. Again, in talking to John Kirby yesterday, you heard him talking about Pooney now being listed as an offensive tackle. And that was something where... um. You know, he he kind of kicked out to it in the spring game. I think there were a couple injuries there. And it becomes very interesting for what that does to try to figure out be your best offensive lineman for a couple reasons. One, the tackle spots inherently just become more valuable because you're on more of an island than you are on the interior. So if you can be really good at left tackle or right tackle, you know, it's it's almost worth more. Um, so if Pooney ends up being uh, doing what he did last year in terms of, you know, blocking grades and, uh, not giving up pressures, all that sort of stuff, but at left tackle or right tackle, 
then maybe he could have that type of season, especially if KU wins eight or nine games, that, that he's getting the notoriety. Mike Nowitzki, we know his name. We know he could obviously be someone where, again, if KU is road grading teams um, and just running all over them, then he's going to get some notoriety to that. And then you look at maybe Logan Brown. Like maybe Logan Brown emerges or Kobe Baines or something. And, and this all goes to the idea that if Kansas ends up being an eight or nine win team this year, it's probably, yes, the defense would have had to get better. The special teams would have had to get better. But the offense at that point, it was a top 25 offense this past year. It's probably like a top 15, maybe better offense. And so maybe you get some offensive line recognition in that situation. Then again, though, with Pooney, if he's kicking out to one of the tackle spots, that means you have one less tackle spot to give out to a Logan Brown or Bryce Cable do or Kobe Baines. Now, maybe Baines plays guard in that situation, and then it's between Brown and Cable do. But uh, I, I do think there is at least some bit of an avenue there that you could go with. I, I would clearly rank the Devin Neal one higher if you're looking for possible avenues there. Uh, what about Kobe Bryant? I think Kobe Bryant, it'd be him or Devin Neal to me, outside of Jalen Daniels. If you were, you know, if you if you could place a bet on like FanDuel or DraftKings or something that said uh, you could pick a player, will they be All American? Right, first or second team AP All American. Um, like Jalen Daniels, probably the favorite, the betting favorite. Again, you could argue against it because quarterbacks, there's just less of them on those teams. But Devin Neal and Jacoby Bryant would would be right there as well. Kobe Bryant was already first team All Big Twelve this past season. What happens if he has a year where he has six or seven interceptions? Because I think he had four last year. He has six or seven. He houses a couple. Like uh, He housed, what, one or two last year? Houses three or four. Uh, ends up with more pass deflections. Is just more of an even shutdown corner as opposed to being, you know, more of a, um, I don't know, boomer bust is, is probably too strong of a word. Like, I don't think it was really bust. But uh, at times, like the Oklahoma game, and, uh, you know, there, there are a few plays in other games where he was less of a lockdown and more of a big play corner that could give up some yards but make big plays. Now, you go back to, like, the Texas Tech game last year, and he was a lockdown corner, right? So, like, if you get the combination of him making the big plays and the Texas Tech game lockdown tape, then all of a sudden you end up with someone who, yeah, he could be a first-team All-American, right? Or he could be a second-team All-American um, at the corner position. So he's clearly someone that I would look to there. It's going to be tough, though, because... If the KU defense continues to struggle again, how many games are they going to win? Uh, is that going to be held against him? So, I, you know, if you struggle against the run again, are you going to have less opportunities against the pass? That becomes some of the issues there. Uh, the next guy I would bring up is Kenny Logan. Logan went from being a All-Big 12 first-team performer to then coming back last year, and I think he was Big 12 honorable mention, but he wasn't on the Big 12, you know, first or second teams. So in that sense, kind of a step back from the level of play. He was dealing with injuries and stuff and, um, you know, I think maybe asked to do a little bit different stuff as far as the defense went. Um, but I, I still think he's got a lot of talent in there. And if that all clicks and, you know, we've seen him return kicks for KU in the past, like let's say he has a great kick return type of season. You have Sean Snyder in the building. You scheme up some great kick return formations and Kenny Logan has two kick return touchdowns and he's one of your leading tacklers on the defense side. He gets a couple big interceptions. He's making key plays for you as he always does. Like think back to the Iowa State play where he's able to like knock the ball away or, or maybe it's an interception. I can't remember uh, on the, the throw to uh, I think it was Xavier Hutchinson like in the corner on, on kind of like a double move um, that 
he is also seen as, as being one of these players who stuck it out with KU that I think the narrative game would also be behind him on a guy who's uh, clearly very, very talented and has flirted with you know all-conference awards in the past. And then my dark horse is Lawrence Arnold and Mason Fairchild. So I, I think that there's very much a chance that Luke Grimm ends up leading the team in receiving yards or or receiving uh, or, or just receptions. Um, he led the team in receptions last year. Arnold led the team in receiving yards, and then Grimm, Grimm was second. So, like, it's not that crazy if Grimm were to do that. It's also not that crazy if, like, what if Quentin Skinner just continue to progress in his overall route tree and being more than a deep ball guy and, and he were to get better or if somebody broke out like a Tanaka Scott or Douglas Emelian where they made a big impact on the receiving game and you just have this balanced receiving core where everybody's getting a little bit you're even throwing to the running backs and all the the tight ends that you have and you know once again just like last year where Lawrence Arnold led you in receiving yards with like 700 that's kind of the case this year like your leading receiver has six seven eight hundred yards just because it's balanced around but if there is a receiver to take off, Lawrence Arnold, to me, it feels like he has progressed each and every year. He was brought in as a highly rated recruit. He's obviously got the, I mean, he's got an NFL body um, in terms of just the height and the, the length and being able to box out like opposing DBs and win contested catches and everything to where if Jalen Daniels is healthy for the whole season, I, I guess even if Jason Bean's there, like we know Bean is, is competent enough. Lawrence Arnold absolutely could put up like a thousand yard receiving season, you know? And what happens if Lawrence Arnold goes for a thousand yards and he's a big touchdown guy with his big body, you know, catches 12, 13 touchdowns again, KU wins eight or nine games, probably going to get a lot of notoriety. And that's, I know, I know those aren't numbers that like jump off the page in terms of you've seen some receivers in the past, like whether it was, uh, I don't know, like a Justin Blackman or something putting up like, you know, 1,800, 2,000 receiving yards or something like that. But, I mean, it's it's just so hard to do that. And you do end up with on these All-American teams all the time now where there are receivers that maybe end up catching, you know, a 1,000 yards or something and end up on the All-American team if they had a big enough impact, if they were on a good enough team, if they had enough touchdowns. Uh, like, for instance... Uh, Xavier Hutchinson, I mentioned him with, with Iowa State. He had 1,171 yards last year and six touchdowns. So I wouldn't expect Arnold to get to that. But as I was saying, what if he gets to 1,000 yards? What if he has 10 touchdowns? What if he has 12? You know what I mean? Like, could that get you on one of the All-American teams? Yeah, I think he could. So I think he'd be a good dark horse candidate. And then Mason Fairchild. I mean, it's not like tight end is a position that is just absolutely brimming throughout college uh, football. Now, last year we had a great tight end class, and that turned into the NFL draft. But now a lot of those guys are gone. And just to begin with, even as great of a tight end draft as it was, that's because it was like people being like, yeah, we got six or seven great tight ends this year. And it's like, th there's not like, it's it's not like running backs, right? Where you could go and maybe the 40th best running back this next season still might have a thousand yards rushing, you know, and, and still might have double digit touchdowns. The tight end position, you're if you're like the eighth best tight end, you might have 600 yards, you know? So, like, Mason Fairchild, with as good as he was last year, if he adds another gear to his game this next season, what if he does go up to a level where he's, this, you know, red zone target and has 800 yards and he's a big blocker, he improves again on his blocking, which improved a lot from the previous year to last year. He improves again on it this next year. Experienced player, older player. That I think that could be a good dark horse one when you don't have – you know, like, like obviously Brock Bowers, like that's the guy everybody's going to circle a tight end. It's probably going to be hard to unseat him. 
Could you be a second team All American? Could you be a third team All American, a tight end in a position where, you know, you look at the stats between, say, Mason Fairchild and Jatavion Sanders and Ben Sinnott, the or Sano, however you pronounce it, from Kansas State, where those three guys are kind of seen as being your first, second, third team All-Big 12 preseason picks right now. The numbers aren't really that different between any of them. So would it be crazy if Mason Fairchild were, were to end up being that guy? No, I, I don't really think so at all. Um, but yeah, so uh, just kind of a fun KU Football Friday question here. But the, the fact that you can go through realistic, logical scenarios for that many players... I think is is very darn impressive. I guess if you wanted to stretch even further, you could maybe talk about Craig Young's athleticism or you could talk about um, Jeremy Robinson. Like, does he have a breakout role? Could he get eight or nine sacks on a season to where that could maybe push him into contention? But the fact that you can talk about this many players, maybe at least having a realistic path, even if they wouldn't be favored to do so, shows you the talent level improvement, shows you the development the staff has done, shows you... Uh, the strong position this program seems to be in right now and makes you feel good about uh, the current core of players that's on the team. All right, this is Rock Shock Sports Talk. You're listening on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, klwn.com, and the KLWN app. We're going to take a time out. When we come back, Kevin McCuller spoke to the media after KU's camp scrimmage on Wednesday. We'll share that audio with you on the other side. Back in a moment.